This has been the summer of the plagues, hasn't it? Now, I'm not talking about all the natural disasters that we've seen around our country this, this summer, like uh, wildfires in Hawaii, unprecedented hurricanes in Southern California, another hurricane in an area of Florida who was just really recovering from one last year. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Exodus and the plagues that we have been swimming through, as it were, for the last uh, couple of months, nine weeks that we've spent in the months of June and August touring through the plague chapters in the book of Exodus together. And we've walked through a number of interesting, interesting plagues, staffs becoming snakes and massive rivers turning into human blood and inundations of frogs, mosquitoes, flies, pestilence, boils, national disasters of widespread hail and locusts. And now beginning last week, we're considering the final plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. But as we said last week, this final plague is not so much about the death of the firstborn as it is about the redemption of God's people from their enslavement in Egypt. In fact, we've been noting from the beginning of our study of the book of Exodus that these first 12 chapters that record for us the plague and the exodus, they're really all about demonstrating who God is as the redeemer of his people. Seven times in these first 12 chapters, you will find the word deliver, and it's used to describe how God will liberate Israel from Egypt, and twice in the first 18 chapters, which is the first division of the entire book, twice you will find the word redemption in relationship to the word deliver, like Exodus 6.6, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt and I will deliver you from their bondage, I will also redeem you. So yes, we've been in a summer of plagues, but we're really looking at a summer of God's redeeming grace. And redemption, as we said last week, is a very humbling concept. It's as humbling as it is liberating. Because redemption actually implies that we are not able to help ourselves. We are in a state where we require the resources of someone else to set us free. Redemption is particularly humbling for people who are addicted to self-idolatry and self-idolatry was certainly Pharaoh's addiction and if we're honest self-idolatry is ours as well we have a penchant to think too highly of ourselves and therefore we downplay the very need that we have to actually be redeemed Exodus 12 marks the final of the 10 plagues and it marks our final time in the book of Exodus until next summer. We'll be back in 2 Thessalonians 3, Lord willing, next week. And then next summer we'll, we'll jump back in and we'll see Israel in the wilderness. But Exodus 12 is not just the end of the 10 plagues, it also marks the end of Israel's having an actual address in Egypt. They're leaving. God's son 
his firstborn son, Israel, will be called out of Egypt to go to the land of promise. And chapter 12 compellingly clarifies that God is actually the redeemer of all of life. And as we noted last week, this chapter has two parts to it. Verses 1 to 28 is basically instruction on what to do to remember God's redemption. And we noted how we should think about redemption. It's foundational, it's sacrificial, and it is worshipful. And we looked at how we should respond to redemption. We identify ourselves with that redemption and we instruct others about God's redemption. That's what we looked at last week in the first 28 verses. Now we come to the second part of this great chapter. In verses 29 to 51, it's a description of how God actually accomplished the redemption. How did he do it? How did God accomplish the redemption of Israel? And we will further consider what the implications of that redemption that was accomplished have for us in this era now that we approach this as Christians. So what was involved in the way that God accomplished Israel's redemption? What was actually involved in it? And how does that then picture for us our own redemption from sin? Because this is not just a historical moment for a historical people in the past. Everything here is pointing us forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we can't just study it as some history in the past. It has redeeming value about our own redemption. We need to see both of those things this morning. So this morning we're going to look at this last part of chapter 12 and we're going to look at different details, three in particular, three details of how God redeemed Israel from Egypt and and it actually points us to humanity's redemption. But we'll focus on three details of how God redeemed Israel from Egypt. These three details, they're, they're very intriguing to me because we're going to see them come again. We're going to see them come again in the life of the Messiah. We're going to see them come again in the future for us. What are these three details? First of all, let's look at the first one. God executed judgment. That's how he brought about redemption. He executed judgment. We'll see that in verses 29 through 36. This is where we see God doing precisely what he said he was going to do. He was going to bring judgment. Now judgment, this is when Baptists start talking about hellfire, right? Preacher sweats through the suit coat, prances up and down the stage, warns you to repent and gets you down the aisle, right? You say, oh no, did we come to the wrong church? Well, it did say Baptists on the sign, right? Now there is judgment, but I want you to see two different aspects of judgment that are really critical. There is the punishment of sin for sure, There's also the provision for sinners. And that happens within judgment. And I want you to see it. First of all, I want you to see that God did, in fact, punish sin. He punished sin. It's in verses 29 through 32. Look first at verse 29. Now, it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. So around midnight, literally the Hebrew phrase is in the midst of the night. So it's not just when the clock strikes 
12 a.m. It's in the midst of the night, at the time of night when virtually no one would normally be awake. The Lord struck. The word used here in Hebrew for struck is a very violent word. It's actually used back in chapter 2 in verses 11 through 13 to describe the physical fight that two Egyptians were having when Moses came up on them. And then that text goes on to say that Moses actually struck one of the Egyptians and killed him. And then what was next in the story? Moses saw two Hebrews fighting and they asked him, are you going to strike us like you did the Egyptian?" And that word strike is violent enough that it could be fatal. It's used in chapter 5 verse 14 to describe how the Egyptian taskmasters were beating, striking, violently striking the Hebrew foreman, demanding that they get more work out of the Hebrew people. Not only is that word struck used to refer to physical violence, it's really fascinating that throughout the plagues, God has used that same word struck to describe what God is doing through the plagues. He's striking the Egyptians. As they were striking the Hebrews, God now strikes back and violently strikes them. This word was used in chapter 7, verse 17, I'll strike the water, and then Moses struck the water and it turned to blood. It's used in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, where Moses struck the dust to create the gnats. In chapter 9, verse 15, Yahweh was striking the people with pestilence. In chapter 9, verse 25, hail struck the Egyptian crops. In chapter 9, verse 31, this word was used to describe the ruin of the Egyptian barley fields. They were struck. This is an important word. And in the final plague, God strikes the firstborn. I know I hear this a number of times from non-Christians as to why God would use such violence. This is a violent term. Well, don't forget, this is punishment. This is punishment. There were plenty of merciful, patient, less destructive warnings given to Egypt. There were warnings, pleadings, opportunities to respond repentantly, differently than Pharaoh and the Egyptians did. And the violence that God uses here to strike Egypt, it does mimic the violence of the Egyptians toward the Hebrews. But why so violent? When you see this kind of response, it highlights something about the nature of God. You say, well, it highlights that he's a cruel God. No, it highlights that he's a holy God. It highlights that he is a holy God and to strike his people is as if you were striking him. And the punishment has to fit the crime. How valuable is the holiness of God? You will see it in the punishment enacted. If it were less than what it was, you would think less of the holiness of God than you do. He wants you to see that his holiness in his nature is of such value that to strike against it is to invoke the most violent response that is justified. 
Nothing less than this would be justified. And here the death of the firstborn is certainly one of the most striking of God's strikes against Egypt. And think through this, that temporal death of an individual person was only the entryway into an eternal punishment that awaited. It's a very, very poignant moment to hear that God struck. And you notice again in verse 29, he struck from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. That's a little bit different than what we saw back in chapter 11 when he was, he was about to, he was telling them what's going to happen in chapter 11, verse 5, it was, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. Here it's the captive who's in the dungeon. Why the difference? It's a reminder. The issue is not captive versus slave girl. The picture is from the greatest, most important person in the land down to the least important, the least significant. They're all going to be struck. And this would be an interesting reminder because the slave girl at the mill or the captive in the dungeon could also include the Israelites. They were the slaves. They were the captives. And for them not to put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels, for them not to acknowledge that they needed a savior and a substitute, they also would experience the violence of God, not just against the Egyptians, but against sin itself, which they were guilty. Have you ever thought through that? When the Israelites were putting blood on their door and sacrificing this lamb, they were acknowledging that they were sinful. And that their sin deserved death. That's why the lamb had to die. And the blood had to be applied. Because judgment will come not just to those who have opposed God's people. It will come to everyone who chooses not to follow God at all. Who won't acknowledge their sin. Note verse 30. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. What woke them up in the middle of the night, do you think? Well, it could be as the destroyer moved through the homes, they could hear death being enacted, but I, I'm fairly convinced that no one actually went to sleep that night. How many plagues have they just been through? They've been warned. They have watched Israelites at the same time slaughter lambs and put blood on their doorposts. They knew what was coming. How many Egyptians do you think actually laid down for a good night's rest? More than likely they were up all night long peeking in on their children to see if they still were alive. And what a horror would strike your soul when you walked into that room and you looked and that child was no longer breathing. The wails erupted, the cries came out. And if for any reason you happened to fall asleep, you would be awake now because you could hear the entire neighborhood around you crying because no home among the Egyptians was, was without someone dead in it. 
That is absolutely astounding. God had promised this back in chapter 11, verse 6. He said there will be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. Think about how intense that kind of grief would be. Worse than that one, I think. No Egyptian home spared. Death hit them all. Punishment for their persistent, intentional, hard-hearted unbelief. And it impacted the entire country. Look at verse 31. Then he called for Moses, Pharaoh did. He called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship Yahweh as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. Now does this mean that when Pharaoh said, leave me Moses back at the end of chapter nine, you'll never see my face again. And Moses said, that's exactly what's gonna happen. I'll never see you again. Does this mean that didn't happen? That Pharaoh reneged? Not likely. The term that's used here for him calling could mean to come and stand in my presence, but it's often used to speak of sending out by a messenger, here's instruction. And I think that's likely what happened. Moses was not likely in the area around Pharaoh. He was in Goshen with the Israelite people about to depart Egypt as, it, as the text would tell us. But Pharaoh here is devastated. We have not seen him act like this to this point. He was devastated. He was depleted of any further resistance. He was not going to stand against Yahweh again. Death does that, doesn't it? Death is the most depleting, soul-sapping, resistance-defeating human experience. You know that if you have experienced the death of someone close to you. There is nothing that parallels that kind of experience. It takes everything out of you. Paul refers to it as the sting of death in 1 Corinthians 15. It pictures, and it, it pictures a pain that pierces like nothing else does. It's so final, there's no recovery from this. It steals human joy, it steals vitality. And you remember, along the way, throughout the plagues, there were times when Pharaoh seemed to relent a little bit, like in chapter eight, verses 25 to 28. He was at a point after the flies that he was willing to let Israel go, but just within the land of Egypt, not outside of it. You remember that? There was another time in chapter 10, verses 8 and 10, where in anticipation of the locusts, his servants were telling him, you need to let these people go. And he says, well, I'll let the adults go, the men go, but not the children. And you remember in chapter 10, verses 24 to 26, Pharaoh would allow all of them to go as long as they kept their flocks in Egypt because they were without any flocks to feed their own people. Now... The death of his firstborn child struck him so deeply, he didn't care what they took and he wanted them to take everything out. Just leave, just leave. Now, we know because we've read this before or maybe you saw the cartoon or maybe you've seen the movie, but we know that this moment of Pharaoh's defeat 
is going to be resurrected into a seething hatred that's going to make him want to pursue the Israelites and completely wipe them out. This is only momentary. It's not over. But you can see the effect that divine death has on the human spirit. But did you also notice that little phrase at the end? Go, take it all, get everything out and bless me also. Bless me also. What is that? Well, it's not repentance. It's not repentance. He's not turning away from his self-idolatry. He's not becoming a worshiper of Yahweh. He's acknowledging Yahweh is stronger than I am. He's higher. He's more authoritative. He's surrendering to the power and the ability of Yahweh above himself and above all the Egyptian gods because he's, Yahweh has just done the worst deed. He's taken life. And at the same time, Pharaoh still wants to save face. He wants to save face. Fine, go, but I still need some blessing to stay the Pharaoh over Egypt. It's as if he's doing what he did with all the other gods. He seeks some kind of divine favor just to keep him in his place and his position. It's like the sinner who says, I know I need God. I don't want to face any more judgment. So they, they pray the quote unquote the sinner's prayer because I just don't want to go to hell. I don't have any intention of actually changing or turning or leaving sin behind. I just don't want the final consequences. I I want a little good out of this. I'll give God a little bit, but not everything. That isn't how God works, is it? You remember what God actually said to Abraham back in that pivotal chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis 12? When he called Abraham to leave the land where he was, the land of his fathers, and go to a promised land, he did not just tell him promises of a nation that will come from you, but he also made this promise. I will bless those who bless you, and I will, what? Curse those who curse you. What is Pharaoh seeking? Bless me. That word bless in the Bible, particularly in the Pentateuch, is a word that can be synonymous with what we understand salvation to be. It is saving blessing. You don't get saving blessing when you're cursing God and his people. What you get is if you curse God and his people, you receive the judgment of God. You can seek the blessing, but if you won't turn to bless God for his saving blessing... You get curses. That's what Pharaoh's experiencing. He has cursed God's people, even though he wants different outcomes. This is God's punishment for sin. Every time you think about punishment for sin, your mind ought to go to death. Romans 6, 23, you know this one, right? For the wages of sin is what? Death. Ezekiel 18 reminds us that the soul that sins must die. It was Genesis chapter 2 that told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. 
Genesis 5, the repeated phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. The consequences of sin is death. Egypt is experiencing this punitive judgment of resisting the creator. They have doubled down on their insistence in replacing the worship of the one true creator God with that of worshiping the creation which is what Romans 1 talks about we've referred to that throughout this series that Romans 1 is like a theological commentary on the plagues and what do you receive when you turn against the worship of the creator to worship the creation you receive Romans 1 says the wrath of God And he gives you over to your own heart, which then leads to final judgment, ultimately. God provided judgment here. Painful judgment. But that's not all that we see in the judgment of God. It's not just the judgment of sin. I want you to also see, in this judgment, he provides for sinners. He provides for sinners in the judgment, during the judgment. In verses 33 to 36, we see that God provided for sinners. Verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we will all be dead. This is exactly what Yahweh said would happen back in chapter 11, verses two and three. And now we see it, the Egyptians have had enough. and they just want the Hebrews to leave and they know if the Hebrews stay if they don't do what Moses has said then everybody eventually is going to be dead do you think that God would just stop with the firstborn I mean their entire country is ruined and notice the haste that Israel makes in verse 34 so the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their and their clothes on their shoulders. This is exactly what they were told to do previously, and they, they do it. They leave. Notice verse 35. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. What does this mean? Well, before the plague had hit, they had already gone around to all the Egyptians and they said, We'd like your stuff. not just any old stuff we want your gold and your silver I don't want the copper I want the gold I want the silver don't give me the fake jewels I want the good stuff and they had collected it all and the Egyptians don't care because they know they know what is at stake what what good is life with jewels if all that comes to you is death And so verse 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request and thus they plundered the Egyptians. There's the backstory behind the willingness of the Egyptians to give all of their precious possessions away. God had so moved in their hearts. He wasn't forcing the Egyptians to do something against their will. He simply crafted the circumstances that caused them to be willing And the result was they plundered the Egyptians. That's a really interesting term. In one form in the Hebrew, that word could be translated rescue. It could be translated spare, the word plundered. That's not the form used here. In this particular form, it is a word that means to be stripped away. So in one sense, it means to be snatched away 
into rescue and another it is to be snatched away as if it is the plunder of the spoils of war. And we see the concept here, God snatches Israel away in deliverance and rescue, but he at the same time plunders the Egyptians, snatches away their belongings as if they've been defeated in battle. How interesting. Egypt's judgment becomes Israel's provision. The judgment actually provides Israel with everything they need to be sustained now in the wilderness journey to get into the land. They're wealthy. And they've been blessed with these wonderful provisions. And what do you think these provisions are going to be used for in the future? Well, we'll get there eventually when we look at the latter part of the book of Exodus, but there's the construction of the tabernacle, which will represent the presence of God in their midst of God dwelling in their midst and they will use many of these beautiful possessions that they took from the Egyptians to erect a tabernacle to the worship of God. We also know that these possessions will be a temptation to their heart. What also will they use these things for? Just before the tabernacle is constructed, they will create a golden calf do you remember what we said about the cattle in Egypt the calf was representative of the gods of Egypt they create from the Egyptian belongings a god that looks like the Egyptian gods and they'll name it Yahweh and say this is Yahweh who delivered us what a lesson God provides for his people even when he's enacting the wrath, his own wrath against unbelief. He provides for his people and the very provision he gives is either used for his worship or tempts our soul to idolatry. God does provide for his people though. He provides for his people even though he knows what's in their heart is still a sense that is prone to wander away from him. He provides for sinners. You don't forget that, do you? No, it is true that God calls us his children now. We are free from bondage to sin. He does not refer to us simply as sinners any longer. Even though our hearts are still prone to wander from him. He is a rescuer of sinners. By the way, he provided everything you needed to be saved before you ever were saved, didn't he? Romans 5, 8, before you were saved, you were an enemy. And the Bible says that while you were enemies of God, he provided salvation for you. Let's be cautious with this also. I have read that some refer to this as some kind of divine program of paying reparations. This is not, and we need to be careful with it. There's a reason why he uses the word plunder here. This is not God saying that the Egyptians owed the Israelites something because of their years, decades, centuries of enslavement. That's not the idea, that's not the picture. Plundering meant Yahweh defeated Egypt. Egypt was completely defeated, therefore all that they possessed 
was at the hands of the victors and God had defeated them. The victors were then entitled to the spoils of the war. That's why this language is here. Egypt has been defeated. The greatest superpower on the earth has been defeated and now the spoils of the war are available and it's right for them to take it. That's God's judgment. It's his judgment. And it's so interesting. Israel never fired a shot. They never pulled a trigger. They're the victors in a war that they didn't have to really contend with. God did all the fighting. God did absolutely everything. They did nothing. We never read hardly anything about the Israelites except just saying, can we have your gold? Which is pretty brash. I mean, there's no judgment coming out. There's no swords being clashed. There's no cannons being fired by the Israelites. God does everything. It's not hard to miss the pictures of salvation here, is it? Just like you, you don't do a thing to accomplish saving blessing from God. He does it all. He does it all. God delivers his people. I want you to notice a parallel before we we get off of this first important point. It is not coincidental that the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, that much of what happens in the plagues in Egypt are paralleled in the book of Revelation. That's not coincidental. There's not much in the Bible that's coincidental, by the way. There's nothing in the Bible coincidental. When you read about in chapter six, the seals on the scroll, that scroll that contains the finalization of God's purposes for human history, when they're beginning to be broken, you will read that as they're broken, there are things that happen in those seals that parallel some of the judgments you find in Egypt. In Revelation chapter eight, you'll read about the trumpets being sounded and it's more expressions of the wrath of God in a more intense way than the breaking of the seals. And many of those will parallel the judgments of Egypt. But what's really fascinating is when you get to Revelation chapter 16. The end of Revelation 15, and it says in verse 5, after these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. And in chapter 16, verse 2, a bowl is poured out and malignant sores like boils perhaps are poured out on people. In chapter 16, verse three, the sea becomes blood and every living creature in the sea, every living thing in the sea died. Verse four, the third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and the springs and they become blood. Heard of that before? Verse eight, The sun scorches men with fire and it says they would not repent so as to give God glory. In chapter 16, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and of his kingdom and it became darkened like the great darkness that happened in Egypt. It goes on to say they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. 
In verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And then in verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. And there was a massive storm that ended with, as we see in verse 21 of Revelation 16, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. I mean, you read about the plagues in Egypt, and that, that is massively severe. It completely wiped out this entire country but when you get to the book of revelation and you're finding the final bowls of God's judgment they're described just that way these are the final displays of God's wrath it's not on a country it's on the entire planet and it is God's final act of wrath and it looks a lot like that microcosm of Egypt but at the same time throughout the book of revelation and i might be spending time here because later in the fall we're going to start studying this book at the same time you see that judgment you know what you also see in the book of revelation constantly the preservation of God's people the preservation of God's people the perseverance of those who perhaps follow the lamb and even die for the lamb during those days they're not the objects of the wrath of God They're preserved from that wrath. Revelation 6, 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The saints who had been martyred are crying out to God, how long before you avenge us? And the rest of the book of Revelation from that point forward is the answer to their prayer. They pray, their prayers are at the altar of God and the incense at the altar of God is the prayers of the saints that are being answered with the displays of the wrath of God to come and throughout all of it is the preservation of God's people. He preserves them even through the period of judgment you'll read over and over of blessed are those who overcome those who persevere I know that's going to bring up questions in your mind you just have to save them until like November when we actually start studying Revelation but what you're seeing in Egypt in this final plague it's as if we're being warned You think that was just some historical event that you don't have to think about? It's coming. It's coming in a more final and global manner. It's how God redeems. He he judges. At the end of the book of Revelation, after the judgment is done, it's nothing but the celebration of the glory of God and the redemption of his people for the rest of eternity. Let's look at a second detail of how God redeemed Israel from Egypt that has implications for us. A second detail, God enacted deliverance. He enacted deliverance. Verse 37 to 41, here's the actual departure from Egypt. Deliverance has arrived. You see it, verse 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. 
Now it's guesswork actually to be completely sure where these two locations of Ramses and Sukkot are. Scholars have some guess. Sukkot is likely still in the region of Egypt, but they're moving away from it. It's a different place than is described in Genesis 33 when Jacob traveled to a similarly named place that was in the land of promise. This is not in the land of promise. It's still within the region of Egypt. And it says in verse 37 that there were about 600,000 men and people trip all over themselves with this number. Some scholars suggest that Egypt's own army at this time numbered no more than about 25,000 people. So how in the world could Israel have an army that had 600,000 men in it? I mean, why was there any enslavement if they had 600,000 to 25,000? So they suggest that the word translated thousand here could refer to an army unit. And so it means about 600 army units and scholars, some scholars say that would be about 25 to 30,000 people. And so there's a little more, there's a little more parity there. However, I think there's a few problems with that viewpoint and I'm going to just stick with how it's rendered here, 600,000 men. Nowhere else do we find Israel described with numbers this low. In fact, the regular translation of the word thousand means thousand. It's Hebrew. In Numbers 146, Numbers 232, Numbers 2651, all of those places provide numbers right at the 600,000 mark of how many men. And it even gets more specific. It describes those men as being those who were 26 years and up who went up as men who could fight in the army. Now, don't think that Israel had organized themselves into army units while they were in Egypt. They were slaves. They had no weapons. They didn't have an army. They had 600,000 men who were of fighting age. Now, Egypt might have had a professional army of 25 to 30,000 soldiers, but if you looked at the population of Egypt and numbered all of the population that was of the fighting age, you might have a number that is more like the 600,000 number even in Egypt. And it's really guesswork to know what ancient Egypt had in terms of numbers of people and population. But here we're told... We're told, and we were reminded back in Exodus chapter 1 verse 9 that Pharaoh had said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. So I'm going to take it that they had 600,000 men from about the age of 26 up to probably around 60 who are of the age of fighting men in addition to children, in addition to women, in addition to others who could not walk by foot, which would number them somewhere around two million people, roughly. You see, that's just, I don't know that that's believable. The Bible does a lot of things that you might not believe. Just to test and whether or not you will believe. But here's what God does. He leads up a group of, a massive group of people out of this land of Egypt, about a day's journey outside of the capital city, as it were, of Egypt. Look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. Remember, their herds and livestock were preserved. 
What are we to do with this mixed multitude? Well, this is likely people who were not native Israelites. They weren't ethnic Jews, but they had left Egypt and they had connected themselves in their identity to Israel. They're going to come back. It's going to be a group that will haunt them in their future. Numbers 11.4 talks about the rabble who were among them and had greedy desires. So we know this group, they, they leave Egypt probably because they're scared of what would happen if they stay in Egypt. And they connect themselves to Israel and they're, they're ready to do what the Israelites are going to do. They want to identify themselves with the people of Israel. Some of them, not wholeheartedly. In fact, the term is the Hebrew term Erev Rav, which one Jewish commentator, modern Jew, Jewish commentator, Kasudo said, it sounds a lot like our English riffraff, Erev Rav. And he says that might be the intention of, the, of Moses is to describe them as kind of the riffraff. Verse 39 says they were obedient, all of them were, they were obedient to get out of Egypt quickly. They didn't get into negotiations with the Israelites and linger a little while. No, they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread for it did not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. That's interesting to note too. They had not prepared any other provisions outside of the bread. Why? They're gonna have to learn to live dependently on the Lord aren't they in the wilderness which is going to really try them they're going to have these hallucinations in the wilderness you remember the onions and the leeks and the garlic as if it was pleasantries back in Egypt not at all but here they're obedient and they get out in verses 40 to 41 is a summary of the deliverance now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. You might remember that back in Genesis chapter 15, God had predicted this to Abraham hundreds of years before, 430 years before. Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed. And it says there for 400 years. In Genesis 15, 16, there's the prediction, in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What are we to do with there's a little discrepancy? Is it 400 or 430? Well, this could be similar to the number 600,000 and you look in the book of numbers and it's 601 or 602,000. It could be just rounding off and giving general round numbers or this could be, Genesis might be a reference to how many years they were enslaved and this might be a reference here, 430, to how many years they were actually in Egypt because not all the years that they were in Egypt were they enslaved. There were some better years even after the death of Joseph. So either way, it's, uh, we've seen God round off some of these numbers before. What about this phrase to the very day? It literally means on that very day. Remember, God said, on this day, you'll leave. And on that day, guess what they did? They left. 430 years, and on the day God said they were going to leave, they left. There was no delay. It happened. Now, I want you to notice just one other interesting thing here. Look at verse 41. 
at the end of the 430 years to the very day, notice the phrase used to describe them. All the hosts of Yahweh. The word hosts is the word we normally view as an army. As if they're marching out like a victorious army with all the spoils of war, the hosts that belong to Yahweh. The banners of Yahweh were lifted in victory over the Egyptians, the spoils were being carried out, and the armies of Yahweh left. Just hours before they were slaves, and now they're armies? That's deliverance, that's redemption. He enacts deliverance. They leave like victors who never, never had to pull the trigger. They never had to fight at all. God did all the work. All the work. It's such a perfect portrait of saving redemption. Have you ever thought through that carefully? What did you do to save yourself from your sin? Oh, I believed I believed, and I hope that you did believe because you can't become a Christian and not believe. You have to believe. Well, what is it that triggered you to go from unbelief to belief? Self-ingenuity? You got smarter? You're just a better person than others? Something in you convinced you from one day to the next, and some of you might be here and you're not quite convinced yet and you're not there yet, but the only thing that is actually going to bring you from unbelief to belief is God. And even then, you're not going to be strong enough to save yourself from the consequences of your sin. Your sin and your heart are too powerful. It will require God to do that. It requires God to satisfy his own standards. It requires God to arrange all the provisions necessary for you to believe and then to be sustained in belief thereafter. It's God who gives all the instructions. It's God who does all the fighting of all of our enemies. It's God who unshackles the chains that enslave us. The sinner follows. The sinner trusts. The sinner obeys. And even that is God's work. What a beautiful picture of deliverance. He judges, then he enacts the deliverance. Let's look at one third and final detail. He enforced distinction. God enforced distinction, verse 42. Let me just read through these verses. Verse 42, it is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. 
But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let them come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. I just want to point out a couple of things here. The fundamental issue here is about making a distinction between those who are publicly identified as God's people and those who aren't. There has to be a distinction. You see verses 48 and 49, it talks about strangers and foreigners and non-natives of the land, non-natives of the land that will be the land of promise refers to the Abrahamic covenant that will distinguish these people as God's nation. And if you're a foreigner and a non-native, you have to forsake all of your native approaches to the worship of whatever gods you worshiped. And you then have to identify with Israel as being a part of Israel, God's people. So the issue for Israel is not so much about ethnicity as it is about worship. Yes, God will say in the future, you can't intermarry with other foreign nations, but why? It's not about ethnic issues. It's about worship because those who you intermarry with will lead your heart away from Yahweh to worship other gods. That's the rationale. It's about worshipful distinction. The people who worship Yahweh are distinct in their worship from every other culture and group around them. They belong uniquely to Yahweh, period. That's why no foreigner can eat of the Passover because the Passover signifies deliverance and redemption from God. And if you, you've not separated yourself and distinguished yourself as a follower of Yahweh, then you've not connected yourself to redemption and deliverance through the Lamb. Again, it's not hard to see the connections, is it? I mean, hopefully, the end of verse 46 kind of lit your attention up. If you know if you've read through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, you know the gospel writers refer to this, nor are you to break any bone of it. When Christ was, they were going to come and break his legs so that he, his, the weight of his body would crush his lungs and he would expire. They found he was already dead and they didn't have to break his legs and they refer to this, why? Because everything in the death of Christ was pointing him to be the lamb. Which means this deliverance, even for Israel at this point, was not an end in itself. You understand that, don't you? This was not an end in itself. No Israelite looked at the lamb that they ate and the blood on the door and thought, lambs are saving me from sin. They understood the lamb represented a sacrifice, a sacrifice that God would accept. They understood the book of Genesis. They understood what God was doing to redeem his people from the curse of sin. They were not looking to slaughtered lambs. They were looking to the ultimate Messiah every time. At least that's what true faith, even at this time, would be consisting of. It was a substitute, like we said last week. It was sufficient for anyone who desired it, no matter how much you did or didn't have. It had to be one that was worthy of God, blameless. It had to be something you identified with. 
and it separated you from all others. And as we said at the end of last week, this is why the Bible points to Jesus as being the Lamb of God or in the book of Revelation, the Lamb that was slaughtered. It all points back to this act. God's judgment looks ahead to his pouring out of judgment and rescuing those who are connected to the Lamb. When God enacts deliverance for his people, he does that even through times of suffering. He provides for his people because of his redemption. He does that through the person of Christ. And God still, even to this moment, calls us to distinction among all the other cultures of the world. We come from so many different backgrounds and God never asks us to identify ourselves by our background. We identify ourselves as the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring all the beauty that comes from our backgrounds with us, but we are known as the bondservants of God, those who've been redeemed by the Lamb. That's the mark that marks us, nothing else. God's the redeemer of life. Before we finish, I I do want to touch on the fact that on that week in which Jesus was giving up his life as a sacrifice for us, do you remember how he began? He sat down at the Passover meal with his disciples, didn't he? It would do your heart some good to go back to a place like Matthew 26 and read through that again, but let me, let me just point out a few things here. If you examine what the gospel accounts emphasize about the final, final Passover meal that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples, you will notice some distinctions rather than similarities with the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb, but things were changing. For example, there's no emphasis in the gospel accounts in the Passover meal to the disciples actually eating the lamb. Do you notice that? What's emphasized in the Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples? Not roasting a lamb, no blood on the doorpost, none of that. What's emphasized? Two things, bread and the cup. No bitter herbs. Even the the idea of bread being unleavened is not emphasized there. It's really fascinating. In fact, Jesus distinguishes this from the Passover meal in a number of ways. In the typical Passover meal, when the head of the family would take the bread, he'd begin to break it apart and hand it to different people, but it was all done in silence. The gospel accounts are all clear. Jesus is talking through the whole thing. And what is he saying? This is my body that is being given for you. This is my body being given for you. The bread being unleavened was not emphasized there. It's just referred to this is my body. This is my body. For you to eat of it is for you to identify yourself with me as the ultimate sacrifice. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 16 and 17 says the bread was not merely symbolic of what Jesus did on the cross physically. It's actually a representation of who we are. Because we eat of the bread, we are his body. That's why we stress when we take the Lord's table as we did last week. 
When we take the table together, we do it together. We don't do it as individuals. Yes, you're saved as an individual. We do it together because we're acknowledging all who take of the bread are the body of Christ. It's a visible sign. He's giving himself for you. You align yourself with him. We display ourselves as his people. Even the cup, when Jesus took the cup, I mean, nothing else of all the other elements of the the Passover meal are signified. He just took the cup, and you, you understand there were multiple cups of wine that were drunk at a typical Passover meal. Here is the final one. This is the final cup, the cup of blessing. They say a blessing in the typical Passover meal before they drink from it, but the reality is, is that everybody normally at a Passover meal has their own cup. What did Jesus do? Well, he changed that. I don't, I don't want you drinking out of your own cup. Drink out of mine. Identify yourself with my blood, my life that will be given for you. And to do that is to identify and signify that you connect yourself to me as the ultimate sacrifice. And he kept saying, this is my blood. And in Luke's gospel, he makes another very significant statement when he talks about the cup. This is not the cup of the Passover meal. Interestingly, the gospel accounts never call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, never calls it Passover, ever. It changes the title. It's the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, because it's connected to the Lord. So he took the, the cup, he passes it around to all of them and says, this is the blood of what? The new covenant. Passover signified Israel under the old covenant. The Lord's table signifies who we are as a new covenant people. We are not tied to the old covenant. We are not Israel. We are a new man, according to Ephesians 2, the church made up of both Jew and Gentile. So I I have people ask me regularly, when are we going to do like a, a Passover Seder. I'm like, I don't have any plans to. I mean, if you like to do that and go back and do that kind of thing and see what was done, you can do it for some historical significance, but it has no real spiritual New Testament signification. The gospel accounts, nor did Jesus make some one-to-one comparison between all the elements of the Passover Seder. No, he actually said, there's just two things I want you to focus on, the bread, which is me, who you will represent, the blood is my life shed for you that you will identify and it's the new covenant that supersedes the old covenant that's done away with. That's why we don't talk about Passover as Christians outside of seeing what it signifies in symbolic meaning going forward. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ, who he is and our identification with him and him alone. It's all about Christ. He is the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate son of God that God brought up out of Egypt, Matthew refers to when Joseph had the dream to go to Egypt so that he would be the son that God calls out, the ultimate one. Next time you take the Lord's table, 
You think about that. This is completely our identification with the one who truly is. Did you ever think about that? For thousands of years, Jews looked at the Passover meal and expected the Messiah. They ate that in faith that Messiah would come. And now for thousands of years, we look back in faith and we say, he has come. And we trust in what he has accomplished. He's done it all. That's what you're saying every time you take it to the Lord's table. It's all done. All accomplished. There's great significance for us. It defines who God's people are. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we finish our time together and this time of studying the critical act of redeeming grace found in Christ, I pray that you would begin to shake human hearts that have been soft toward belief. They've been hard. Soften those hearts so that they would turn and embrace Christ. I pray that you would show them the only escape from future and final wrath is the blood of the Lamb of God, which signifies how terrible our sin is in light of how good and gracious and holy you are. And that what awaits is an unimaginable, eternal damnation apart from you unless we believe and turn and trust and fully and completely identify ourselves with Christ. Lord, we are not here to promote ourselves. We're not here to promote simply Summit Woods. We're here to promote our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We are his people. We are the people you have bought with your blood. So I pray as we leave here, we keep that in mind. We're going to engage in our jobs as those who've been redeemed. We're going to represent ourselves in our neighborhoods as those who are followers of Jesus. We'll interact with our family members as those who belong to the Savior. Remind us who marks us. May that bring great joy to our hearts because we see what we've been delivered from. Sin does not have to have its chains wrapped around our hearts any longer. We're liberated, completely liberated. We have the freedom to follow you in obedience. We have the joy of knowing that all sin, past, present, and future are completely forgiven. We have the confidence that we can grow in faith and deepen our love and affection for Christ and see more and more of your holiness and the image of the perfect man, Jesus Christ, formed in us. All of this because he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the lamb who was slaughtered that causes the entire universe to erupt in praise. I pray that our voices will be a part of that number that our voices will join in such praise for all eternity because of what the Lamb has done, how you've accomplished our redemption. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. My soul finds rest in God alone. 
my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my heart on righteousness, I'll look to him who hears me. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. 